You're likely familiar with that seminal scene in The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars movies. Young Luke Skywalker, the hero of the movie, the leader of the the Rebel Alliance contending for good against the evil Galactic Empire and Darth Vader. Luke and Darth are engaged in a duel and it seems as if Darth Vader has gotten the upper hand when he makes Luke an offer to join him in ruling the Galactic Empire. Luke immediately declines and says he would never do such a thing. And then Darth drops on him that famous line, Luke, I am your father. The truth of the matter is the line is not Luke, I am your father. It's actually no, I am your father. Lore and popular culture has changed it to Luke, I am your father. But that's neither here nor there. This line shocked moviegoers when it came out in 1980. It shocked the public. It even stunned the cast and crew of the movie who had no idea of this plot twist that was coming. Even Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, had no idea that this plot twist was coming until they told him literally right before they began to film the scene. It was kept under close guard who would know this great secret that would change how you understand Star Wars. Now with some, I don't know, 35 Star Wars movies, that's probably an overestimate, and countless spinoffs that have come out, you can't understand them apart from understanding this pivotal moment in Star Wars. In Luke chapter 9, 18 to 27, we reach a pivotal scene in the life of Jesus that actually helps us to grasp everything else that we would understand or think that we know about Jesus. In fact, what we see is that we cannot know Jesus, we cannot know Christianity, or we cannot even know ourselves and what it means to follow Jesus without the cross. The cross is that pivotal scene that helps us to understand Christ and helps us to understand ourselves. In fact, what this passage shows us is that to understand Jesus, look at his cross. And to follow Jesus, take up your cross. Let me say that again. To understand Jesus, look at his cross. And to follow Jesus, take up your cross. I invite you to follow along now as I read from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May God write these truths of his word and the wonder of the gospel upon our hearts. Two ways that we navigate through this passage, and the cross helps us in seeing what we must see. First, we see in verses 18 to 22 that the cross is the means by which we understand Jesus. The cross is the means by which we understand Jesus. We enter this point in Jesus' ministry in a fairly unique place. He had previously worked a variety of miracles, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, calming a windstorm, feeding 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. And he had sent his apostles out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who had any need. Now with the miracles having occurred and the apostles having traveled amongst the crowds and seen the power of God at work even in and through them, Jesus asked them in verse 18, who do the crowds say? that I am. It's a question similar to what Herod asked just a few verses earlier. They answered that some said he was John the Baptist, some said he was Elijah, some said he was just one of the prophets of old. This revealed apparently a unique combination of mistaken belief. The coming of a prophet like Elijah was anticipated in the Old Testament, but Scripture would tell us that that was actually fulfilled in John the Baptist who came to be a forerunner before the coming of the Christ. But now the, these people, they're grasping at straws, trying to figure out the identity of this wonderful Jesus who has come on the scene. John the Baptist was previously killed in faithfulness to Christ. Maybe it's him coming back. No, that's not who he is. But Jesus then asked this penetrating question to this close gathering of his disciples in verse 20. He said, not what do the crowds say that I am, not who do the crowds say that I am, but who do you say that I am? In one sense, this is the question that weighs on each of us. Not who do the crowds say that Jesus is, not who do our parents or our grandparents say that Jesus is, but who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps this would be fitting for you to ponder as we journey throughout this text and as you consider whether or not Jesus is sufficient to follow and to trust as you navigate the waters of your life. Peter's response is absolutely beautiful. As Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, there you see it in verse 20, the Christ of God. This term Christ of God simply means Messiah or anointed one. The Old Testament featured numerous instances where kings were set apart or anointed for the kingly role to which they had been called. And God had promised that one day he would send a king in the line of King David himself, who would occupy the throne, who would rule a kingdom that was far greater than that which David had known. The promise of the coming Messiah was what gave hope to the tired, fearful, burdened hearts of the people of Israel. Interestingly, up to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been professed by the Christ, as the Christ by a number of figures. In chapter 2, verse 11, angels referred to him as the Christ. 
In chapter 2, verse 26, Luke himself, the narrator of this gospel, the reporter who who has surveyed, taken these eyewitness accounts and compiled this narrative, he refers to him as the Christ. Jesus refers to himself as the Christ in chapter 4, verse 18. Even demons refer to him as the Christ in chapter 4, verse 41. But right here is the first time that Jesus is confessed as as the Christ by his disciples or by someone else in the flesh, seeing him, watching him, conversing with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this, and on first reading, I would expect Jesus to respond to Peter's profession, to Peter's confession that he is the Christ, and say, yes, Peter, yes, you finally got it. Now gather James, John, Levi, other disciples, go spread this news about me far and wide. Go, 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 you're burning daylight. But fascinating, like, that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse 21. It tells us that Jesus, upon hearing this confession of Peter, he does what? He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Sometimes you can read over things and, and lose the, the power, the import of it. Look at it. He strictly charged and commanded them. Don't you tell us so. Why would he command his disciples to not make this known? If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen this alluded to. Jesus knows the crowds adore him. They're fascinated by him. If you were to ask the typical Israelite in Jesus' day, what are you or what are your people's greatest problems? What do you think you would you if you could if you could give God your wish list, things you wish God would fix just at the snap of a finger, what would it be? Perhaps you could quietly ask your own heart that right now. Maybe greater, maybe greater financial success. Get out of financial sense of uncertainty that maybe you find yourself in. Something related to our polarized, hyper-angry, divided culture. Political and social climate. Perhaps you or a loved one is dealing with some kind of serious health issue or hurdle that you're navigating and can't, can't seem to get through. Or maybe you're simply dismayed by the path that life has taken you down. Mother's Day can be difficult as you think about moms that have passed. Or moms or your own children that are geographically or relationally distant. Or perhaps you have the desire to become a mom and that just hasn't happened yet. Whatever it is, as you think about what would I want God to fix if I could have him fix anything. The people of Israel had theirs right before them. They were relatively small in number, small in power. Their own homeland was occupied by Roman forces, undoubtedly bringing pain upon families in the form of increased economic burdens on fishermen and small businesses, as not only they had to make ends meet, but they had to pay exorbitant taxes to Caesar. People felt like prisoners in their own homeland, as everywhere they looked, Roman forces would be patrolling up and down the streets, keeping close watch on them. Jesus tells his disciples not to say a word because he knows that the people of Israel will want to make him king. They will want to have him drive out their Roman occupiers. But what he says is he basically says there's a greater rescue that you need than from the grip of Rome. So read verse 21 or 22 with me. He strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see that there? He says, he basically says, my work is not done. I still have to go through these things in order to accomplish what I came to do. So he's saying to them, there's something greater that you need than me to free you from Rome. So he says to you and I, there's something greater that we need than to be freed from likely what we view as the most pressing burden upon our hearts. Imagine you had to have some kind of serious surgical procedure done. So you've got to go to the hospital early in the morning. You get there and you're parking the car or somebody's driving you in your parking car and you get parked in a parking garage, let's say, and you walk up to the elevator in the parking garage to take you down to where you'll, or up where you'll eventually go to where the surgery is supposed to be, but the elevator in the parking garage is broken. And so you have to navigate the stairs and you eventually get there. The doctors, the, the medical team that is going to be performing the surgery come in, they start talking to you, they start preparing you for what's to come. And you say to them, hey, 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 hold on, I don't, I don't want to worry about this surgery right now. Can you guys go fix that elevator in the parking garage? It, it, it seems absurd. And yet, what Jesus, as he's revealing here, that he has to die, that he has to suffer, that he has to be raised again. In one sense, what we are seeing here is that we might have a temptation to try to co-opt Jesus to accomplish the goals or the things that we think he should do when in fact he needs to do more for us. You see, we have a way we look around and we look out and we see all the problems that stand before us and we say, hey, here's what I need you to fix, Jesus. But he walks in as that doctor who said, no, I came to do heart surgery on you. So our dreams for a smooth life, our goals for social justice or for equality, for injustices to be righted, these are good dreams, but... They're no different than as if this, the patient awaiting surgery was trying to get the doctors to go fix the elevator. The people of Israel didn't need a king to come drive Rome out of their homeland. They needed a Christ to come and occupy the throne of their hearts. The wonder of the gospel is that God knows our greatest need is actually not outside of us, but inside of us. Jesus came and performed all of these miracles by the word of his power. Think about all that he did just by his word or just by somebody touching him in the chapters leading up to this. Calming the waters of, of hurricane-force winds on the Sea of Galilee, feeding 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread, and yet he would say, the greatest thing you need is not the word of my power, but my death on the cross. Maybe you've had that idea before in your own life. If I could get this problem solved, if I could get this situation resolved, then you find another one arises. Life is one steady pattern of crisis management. Well, the invitation of Christianity is not one where, hey, come to Christ and all your problems are solved. But the invitation is come to Christ and what you find is that he begins that work of, of, of giving new waters, of bringing living waters into the wells of your heart so that you can hopefully then begin to process through these other crises that you face from a perspective of hope in your Lord who has met your greatest need and who is with you, whatever you face. The gospel offers you new life 
through Christ's death on the cross for you, for your sins. If you would like to talk more about this after our service, I'd love to speak with you down in the lobby. The wonder of the cross is that it is the door by which we rightly understand Jesus. The wonder of the cross is that it is the door by which we come to Jesus. The wonder of the cross is that when we come to him, we lose ourselves and find our Christ who gave his life in order that we may live. But we don't just see the wonder of the cross, we see the weight of the cross. Jesus ratchets up our understanding of this cross by showing us that it's not only by the cross that we understand Jesus, but secondly, it's by the cross or the cross is the manner by which we follow Jesus. Okay, so first, verse 18 to 22, the cross is the, man, is the manner by which we understand Jesus. Secondly, the cross is the manner by which we follow Jesus. Verses 23 to 27. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, okay? They're having this heart-to-heart with Jesus. He's revealing these things about things that are still to come for him. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. And you think, oh, he's saying this. And, and you're trying to like, do I, do, I, do I feign disappointment? Do I, how do I, like, like, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Or, well, do what you've got to do. Like, like, how do I respond to this? I feel like if he knows this is coming, he could get out of it if he wanted to. You know, you're kind of wondering that as a disciple. So they're gathered with him. They're thinking, oh, Jesus, that, that stinks. And maybe they're throwing out some kind of token, like, is, is there anything we can do to, to change that, Jesus? Or, or what, what, what do you want from us? How, how can we help you in this moment? You see, in Jesus' day, the cross was a repulsive, horrific weapon intended to produce terrible dread in the hearts of the people of Israel. It was a cruel way. Executing people on crosses was how the Romans got uh, rebels in line. They used the cross to, 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 to thwart any kind of uprisings. The very concept of crucifixion is ghastly. So the disciples are hearing Jesus talk about his own death, and they're saying, oh, that's not good. But then Jesus, in verse 23, lays the weight of the cross on them. When he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. One can picture Peter, who previously made this great profession that Jesus is the Christ of God. You know, he's, he's probably feeling pretty good. Yeah, I got that question right. Feeling good about myself. And then Jesus says, yeah, you want to follow me? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And Peter kind of, you know, still feeling the, the hubris of getting the first question right. So, no, excuse me, come again. I, I missed you, Jesus. I think you said, I also must take up a cross. This flies right in the face of everything that we would hold as precious or valuable for us. Right in the face of our individual autonomy. We are naturally a self-determining, self-directed people. We ruggedly set out on our own course. In truth, our default is to not want a Christ or a Jesus or a Christianity that demands our lives. Rather, we want a Christ, a Jesus, a Christianity that we can mold into what we want Him to be for our lives. What can He add to me? Not what can He take away from me. Namely, what does He take away in taking away my life and my control over, my sovereignty over my own life? I don't know if you've ever been to a Build-A-Bear workshop where you can take little children, you guessed it, build a bear. Or any kind of stuffed animal, apparently. 
There are multiple stages to building a bear. You choose your animal. You choose the sound that it'll make. You stuff the bear with whatever stuffing. You dress your bear. You register your bear. Bada bing, bada boom. You have your own bear. You think, well, I choose this. I choose this. I bring it all together and it fits. It's registered. This is Stephen's bear. If we're not careful, we want build a Jesus Christianity. Where I take Jesus and, okay, I want these things. Ah, let's hold those away. Those are a little more difficult. The, the cross thing. Mm. Okay, he died on the cross for me. Good. Me take up my cross for him. Yeah, we're going to hold that out. Imagine as you're going through the bins of build a Jesus Christianity. Maybe the good things are like, there, there's not a lot of them left in the bin, but like take up your own cross. Like that bin's overflowing. Is anybody going to choose this one? Jesus in his mercy tells us that we don't develop our own personal Jesus that fulfills all of our desires. No, he says, if you're going to follow me, here's what it looks like. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Are you willing to disavow the desires, the dreams that you have for your life, personally, for your professional career for your family goals for your children are you willing to surrender all things under the authority of king jesus and say jesus all that i cling closely to i surrender and i give it all up for you are you willing to metaphorically die to yourself are you willing to endure scorn rejection ridicule confusion from those around you who know you're a follower of jesus this line of taking up your cross. In, in Jesus' day, criminals would be paraded through the streets carrying the, the, the tea part of the cross. Scorned, mocked, ridiculed. You know what word in this whole passage perhaps troubled me more than any as I prepared this sermon? Daily. You see that? Take up your cross daily and follow me. On the days when it's easy? On the days when it's hard? Are you willing to humbly trust your life under the authority of God's Word? Willing to welcome God's Word confronting the sin in your own heart? Changing you into the person that He would desire to make you into? Are you willing to follow Him knowing that faithfulness to Christ can and likely will mean scorn and eye rolls from those who are not Christians whose opinion you cherish and value? Are you willing to commit to walking with His church and His church walking through life with you as we lock arms together in obedience to Christ? One of the ways the New Testament lays before us faithfulness in following Christ is through commitment to His church. Covenanting with other Christians to walk and step in the gospel together, trusting that God is doing His sanctifying work within us. It's how we protect ourselves from build a Jesus Christianity. Going on, Jesus gives three statements that serve as warnings or explanations for what he means about following him. First, in verse 24, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, this lie that surrounds us everywhere we turn, we walk down the road of life, there are promises of, 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 of finding your best life, of championing your, 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 your personal health, your personal success, securing good social standing. 
Jesus says, whoever would save his life, whoever would value his life over me would lose it. I read this week about Christians in the Manipur state in northeast India. Our brothers and sisters in the faith this week have endured the suffering, the burning of 50 church buildings, the looting or destruction of some 1,000 other buildings and homes. Thousands of Christians, a minority group in this Hindu-dominated part of northeast India, fleeing literally into the jungles to avoid threats on their lives as tensions between uh, the majority uh, and the minorities rise. Christians seemingly losing everything, even their lives for the sake of Christ, but in that finding Christ. Let us be careful to contrast this with the mindset that seeks a comfortable Christ in this life, that takes some of Jesus here but does not fully trust Him there, that refuses to die to self. This is a life where one takes the pithy hallmark sayings of Christ and yet doesn't take up the cross of Christ, and they find that they have actually taken and saved their life now only to lose it in eternity to come. Jesus says in verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He turns now to more of a, thinking more of like a financial sense. We think about investments. We think about possessions. We think about our wealth. Remember, Jesus is probing. He's, he's performing surgery on our hearts. He looks at and He wants to pry our hands open off of whatever we hold most dear. And we grip to it and refuse to let it go. He says, I want to pry it open. And I want you to turn and grab hold of me. Saying, I gave up all of these things in the cross. You take hold of me, I will supply you with all that you need. Jesus says, if you let your heart trust that something else, anything else apart from me will save you. Even if you gain the whole world, you will lose it all. But you lose your life for my sake and you will find it. The problem here Jesus is addressing is not the person who has money. It's the person whose money has them. The last qualifier he gives in verse 26 is, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's perhaps the most pointed Sobering warning that Jesus gives. Our Lord warns us against being ashamed of Him and of His words. Of denying Jesus because we don't want to be denied by those around us. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a precious jewel. A treasure of infinite worth. Yet to the outsider looking in, it can look as if it is burdensome. And painful and even wrong and harsh. We see and understand this reality about the danger of being ashamed of Christ in our day. One could think about how the Bible is seemingly out of step with expectations regarding gender and sexuality in the worldview of our day. How these seem to be out of line with God's wisdom and design of men and women and marriage designed by God to be between one man and one woman and all sorts of things come to our mind where I say, okay, yeah, there's ways in which my life, my convictions would be, I'd be tempted to be ashamed of those. 
with my neighbors, with those around me. And now, in broaching this topic, you may think, well, the Bible's just outdated. It's just out of touch on those matters. Yet what we see is fundamental discrepancies between how we understand human nature and the grace and the power of God. The wonder of the gospel is that it meets each of us where we are, and it doesn't say, let's celebrate you where we are, but by the power of God, he's going to make you into whom he would have you to be. This meets a person who deals with same-sex attraction or the person who deals with heterosexual sin. Either one meets the greedy person, the glutton, the addict, you name it. It meets all of us wherever we have that great need for God's grace to work powerfully within us, and we all have it. And it says to us, I can make you new. It offers us a Savior who doesn't say to you, hey, let, you need to get your act together. It offers us a Savior who says, I have come that I may give you myself, that I may die to make you new and to give you life with me. The wonder of the gospel is that it shows us Christ's love for us. It is so profound. He didn't say with all the power of God, okay, you go be well. He gave his life as perfect atonement in order that in his death we may live. And then what this shows us in the fullness of this is bound up in the very name that you, Jesus uses to describe himself. Son of man. Do you see that there in verse 26? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed? Okay, Jesus uses this term Son of Man some 25 times in in Luke to describe himself. The ESV Study Bible describes his use of this title in this manner. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It indicates the true meaning of his identity and ministry. In three ways. First, it shows us the humble servant who has come to forgive common sinners. Secondly, the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people. And thirdly, it shows us the glorious king and judge who will return to establish God's kingdom on earth. This is why you have the reference to the return of Jesus in verse 26. To anticipate return but not receive the cross is out of step with him. Let me say it another way. Jesus warns us here against looking forward to heaven without taking up your cross, of anticipating the crown with no cross. Because to do so is to try to smuggle part of this fallen world and part of our sinful nature even into the next life. But Jesus says, following me by taking up your cross is Christian sanctification that is in fact preparing you for heaven. And think of, of, of sanctification like this. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Little Rascals uh, from like the early 90s. They, the Little Rascals, they burn down their uh, uh, clubhouse or their fort. And so a couple of them decide that they're going to go to a bank and try to get a loan to get the materials to build a new one. So they do the whole thing where they get on, sit on one another's shoulders and they got a long trench coat on to try to look at, like an adult uh, human being that would go get a bank or go get an account. It's really funny. They sit down and uh, or they're standing there, and they, the, the uh, person working at the bank says, what, what, what's your account number? And they have no idea what their account They just say, seven? <laughs> uh, but, but 
If we won't take up our cross, we are like those little rascals who have everything about us bundled up together and we're trying to get our way to heaven. But Christ comes to us and he says, I know you. I love you. I have given my life for you. And the way in which you receive me is by letting me take these out, take these things you're trying to smuggle in to try to look the part. And rather, take all of those out. Allow me to perform this heart surgery on you. And then I will give you my cross. But what you will find is that this cross that is an instrument of death, if you bear that cross in submission to and in trust in me, you will find that it is actually an instrument of eternal life. After giving some heavy truths to his disciples, Jesus offers them what may seem like a strange warning or a confusing statement, but I think it's actually an encouragement to all of us who would take up our cross and follow him. Verse 27, he said, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by that? I think the very next event recorded in Luke gives us our answer. He's going to take three of his disciples up on a mountain where they will see his transfiguration. They will see him in full resplendent glory. They will see the Son of Man eternally glorious and worthy of their praise. And they will know that this is the Jesus in whom they trust and who will one day return. So how do you look forward to that day? That day when we will see our Lord, that day we will see the Son of Man come for His people. We look back at His cross, we pick up our cross. Just like you cannot understand Star Wars without that seminal dialogue between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. You cannot understand Jesus or even yourself as a Christian without looking at the cross. And without taking up your own cross. To rightly understand Jesus, look at his cross. To truly follow Jesus, take up your cross.